Writing about food as a literary device, as almost a character, has a long tradition in literature. Monique Truong manages to write about food, thereby giving voice to the unseen. It's on tip of the tongue. Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Monique Truong. She is an author, a food writer, she is a novelist, she is a lawyer, and she is a librettist. And with all of that, we're going to be talking about many things uh, in her life that have to do with food, but we're in particular going to be talking about The Sweetest Fruits, which is her most recent novel. Welcome. Lovely to be with you, Liz. So first, I would like to talk to you about just how you made this journey to uh, writing books and doing the writing that you're doing. Well, I think of the journey as more of uh, coming home, Okay, you know, mm-hmm. in the sense that I, I think I've always wanted to be a writer and the law part of my life was really the aberration. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I will tell you, I went to law school because I didn't know what to do. And, you know, a lot of people will tell you that they've gone to law school because they wanted to deal with social justice issues or they wanted to make a lot of money or whatever it is that motivated them. I, like you, have a degree in English and I didn't know what to do. I didn't have a teaching degree and I'm about 20 years older than you. So when I was getting my degree, you still needed to be a teacher or you needed to be a secretary or something like that. And so I got the advice, you have to be one, you have to be a professional. You have to be an architect, you have to be an engineer, you have to be a doctor or a lawyer. Otherwise you're gonna get pushed into these very marginal jobs. And so just, just totally rationally, I determined that to be an architect or an engineer would take me three more years and I would have a second undergraduate degree. I didn't want to be a doctor. And so that left law school, which was three years, but with a terminal degree. So that's how I picked being a lawyer, which was a rational decision, but not one made with a lot of passion. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I can tell you, Liz, that my decision really had to do with fear okay and I uh in particular sort of the the fear and apprehension that my parents had you know because we came to the U.S. as refugees Mm -hmm. from the Vietnam War and like many refugees and and immigrants you know before us the idea of stability meant first and foremost, economic stability, yes? Mm -hmm. And the idea that they 
would send me to an Ivy League college and I would get a literature degree. <laughs> you know, like, what does that do? Right. <laughs> and they never, I think, um, pointed towards law school per se, because, you know, like all good <laughs> Vietnamese Americans, they would prefer that their children go to medical school. <laughs> yes. <laughs> But with me, because my math skills were so poor, they knew that I would never, you know, make it through the MCATs. So they were, I think, just fearful and, and, and sort of their desperation was just communicated to me in every single conversation, but with no actual direction, mm -hmm. you know? And I, I turned to law school because, because I figured, look, I do know how to write. I do like to surely express myself. <laughs> and to me, that was sort of the vague, you know, idea and motivation. And did you practice law? Oh, yes, I did. I was a lawyer in New York City, where I still am, for, let's see, it was three and a half years full time. I started out as a litigator mm -hmm. in a large law firm. And by the time I left the law, I was an intellectual property attorney, uh, specializing in trademark. Okay. Okay. <laughs> But having the IP background is probably not a bad thing for you as a writer. Oh, certainly. Um, I'm never fearful of a contract. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And, you know, I certainly know my way around copyright. But I think that anyone out there, and you probably already have picked up on how bizarre it is, because trademark law is all about corporations and entities and individuals owning <laughs> certain words and right. rights, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. To certain words within a certain parameter, of course, but that's very antithetical, <laughs> right? To, to the to what writers sort of sort of luxuriate in, which is the freedom of being able to use words. Right, right. <laughs> well, so how did you get into then writing after law? Right. Well, when I was still practicing during my first year of practice, which as you probably know, is probably the worst year. Yes. <laughs> It's incredibly boring work and long, long hours. Around that time, I started to work, sort of volunteer, really, with a small um, literary arts organization in um, New York called the Asian American Writers Workshop. Okay. And from that, I uh, was helping to edit an anthology Uh, of Vietnamese American writing. And I wanted to contribute something to this anthology. And I didn't have anything new, you know? And so I had to write something new. And once I wrote this, this what I thought was a short story, it just 
in my mind, in my imagination, it wouldn't end. It, you know, it needed more. I knew what had to, you know, take place. Mm -hmm. And so that was sort of what I pinpoint as the end of my legal career. (laughs) You know, like I knew, I knew that, that uh, it could be more. And that eventually became the second chapter of my first novel, which was called The Book of Salt. Yes. And um, from that point on, I was strategizing about, well, how do I make more time? How do I create basically, you know, gaps between my first job and my second job and part-time work as a lawyer? You know, it just kind of devolved (laughs) from that point on. (laughs) Well, I feel like we have a lot of connections that come out in different different ways. First of all, because we're both lawyers, and I presume that you are also a recovering lawyer. Yes, I'm officially a retired lawyer, according to the New York State Bar. Okay, okay. You actually know who Lafcadio Hearn is, which so many people don't. Of course, he played such a big role in New Orleans, food history, that It makes sense for me to know who he is, but whenever I find someone else who knows who he is, I'm always excited. My son, actually, when he was in college, dated a young woman from Japan who was a foreign student at at his college, and we were talking about Lovecadio Hearn, and I I felt that same kinship with her. It's like, oh, you know who Lovecadio Hearn is? (laughs) And then... The other thing is that New Orleans is the home to very many Vietnamese uh, Americans. And I feel that same sort of food kinship because I've eaten so much Vietnamese food, not only in restaurants, but in people's homes. And I always think that if you've eaten somebody's food, that you know them in some way. Anyway, I love that you were able to find what you wanted and then move into it. But you also did food writing. You weren't only writing novels. Ah, well, actually, you know, I used to joke that I had to write a novel so that I could write food essays. <laughs> it's, it's a joke, but it's not a joke because I actually, I'll tell you that at least being uh, in New York, it felt like an impossible sort of uh, space to move into, meaning the magazine sort of food writing world, because it, it, at that time, it did feel so coveted and, and insular, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, I love Gourmet Magazine, you know, my beloved, beloved and dearly mourned Gourmet, right? Uh-huh. But I had no idea how I would ever have a piece in that, you know. And once the Book of Salt came out, that was when Gourmet reached out to me and said, would you like to write an essay for us? And that's when my food writing began in terms of essays and articles. But before, no. And how do you consider them different? How is it different Mm -hmm. to write a food essay I can understand that more of an article is more journalistic, but when you're writing an essay versus writing fiction, 
it's still mm. your thoughts and your feelings. Mm. Oh, absolutely. I think that, um, well, you know, the first person essay is um, uh, you expose yourself, right? Yes. You can think about it as exposing or just sharing. It's, it's very intimate, you know, what I like to eat, you know, what I've eaten, what I've found pleasure in or distaste in, you know, I mean, you can, it is clearly a first person experience, my experience. When it comes to the novel writing and, and how food can play a part in it with, it is sometimes I have to say even more of truth laden because you do not have to put the I, my, <laughs> your face, your name to it, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think sometimes it does feel more truth-telling, more forthcoming. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Well, and food itself is so intimate. I mean, you put it into your body. And so when you're revealing things about the way you feel about food, it's intimate. There's no question about it. And um, that is a, it's a scary kind of brave thing to do, I think, Mm. anyway, to talk about it. Yeah. um, Food is incredibly uh, intimate. Um, And I think this is one of the reasons why people, readers, gravitate to reading works of fiction Mm -hmm. or nonfiction about food. Because in a way, we begin with a foundation of understanding. You know, even if we're very different Mm -hmm. from one another, we know what an egg is you know we know that sort of the particular that particular spark or our tartness of a lemon you know all these things I mean it it's it's something that I I think gets underplayed you know this this idea that commonality or a foundation is required in order for people to truly um, sort of listen and to hear. And this is why food writing is powerful. Right, right. So before we start talking about the sweetest fruits, I also wanna ask you about your your libretto writing. Ah, yes, right. Um, That is something that, has taken me totally by surprise. Um, I I often go to artist colonies to work, to Mm -hmm. write. And I went to one in Italy a couple of years ago and there were composers there. And I met an incredible composer, a very um, well-known woman named Joan LaBarbera. And she and I started working together after we came back to New York. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it started out. You didn't out- know her in New York. You met no, her. No, okay. no, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, it started out as a, a single standalone song. And then we did a choral work together. And then we did a song cycle. And right now we're in the process of working on an opera about, well, rather inspired by the life of Virginia Woolf, mm-hmm. you know, and um, the artist, um, oh gosh, all of a sudden, uh, Joseph Cornell. Okay. <laughs> um, yes, about the artist Joseph Cornell, who did those wonderful sort of very uh, cryptic and uh, boxes you know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. And, but uh, from there, I started meeting other composers and I'll tell you that I have a piece which is premiering next year, hopefully, hopefully meaning if the pandemic will actually allow us to have in-person events at the Asia Society, Texas, you know, which is in Houston, lovely, lovely building and organization. And it's called or slash and, Mm A-N-D. And it's, I I think the way it's being presented is, is a multimedia chamber operatic poem (laughs) (laughs) so you can imagine there's a chamber ensemble there's a soprano there's projected images there's and I somehow have contributed a libretto to this (laughs) project really exciting I would love to Go, go to the premiere. That would be exciting. Is that possible? Is it something? Yes, yes. The information um, has just landed on the Asia Society page. Okay. It's premiering on April 29th. And then there's a second performance, April 30th. And Are you there's going to be there, I hope. I hope, I hope, I hope. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I. I think there's a panel and there's going to be a party, you know, for the premiere. So Liz, it would be a pleasure (laughs) and all your listeners, you know, please come out and support the the lovely chamber operatic poem. (laughs) Oh, I'm excited. I'm going to look it up as soon as uh, we're finished. That's exciting. That's exciting. Okay, now let's move to the sweetest fruits because usually this podcast is about food and various aspects of food, whether it's uh, the history of something or about politics and food or or whatever. And I've had people come and read their poems on the podcast when their poems are about food. And so to me, this reading about your work, reading your work, and especially the sweetest fruits, which is, it's wonderful because it deals with women's issues very strongly, which I think is something important to me, as well as talking about food, um, about the food history of New Orleans, as well as other places. And you managed to mix it all together with great finesse. And I just was just 
overwhelmed by it, which is what made me read the other books after I had read The, the Sweetest Fruits. And I, I really, I want to ask you about Lafcadio Hearn. And for those people who may not know who he is, would you tell us who he is? Sure. Lafcadio Hearn was a half Greek, half Irish writer who lived from 1850 to 1904. And he was born on a, a Greek island called Lefkada. Um, and he went with his mother when he was around two to Dublin, Ireland. And he studied in England and in France. And as a young man, he came to the U.S., living first in Cincinnati. And then for around a decade, he went to New Orleans and really continued to make a name for himself as a journalist. But it was in New Orleans that he started to publish books, right? Right. And in New Orleans, I I really think that he interpreted New Orleans for America. And because he was here during the World's Fair and wrote his book as a way to make money for through tourists who came during the World's Fair. I mean, writing a cookbook is a traditional way to do that. He his name and his ideas about New Orleans and the the food that people ate here and then had the recipes for as they left made the food of New Orleans travel around the um, travel around the country um, at the, the end of the 19th century. And so the other thing that he did was he wrote for the newspaper here mm-hmm. and he began to use a way to describe what to us was just food. This was food. It's what we eat. This is food. But of course, because he was from outside and it always takes an outsider to notice these things, he called it Creole food. And he is really credited with actually giving it a name so that you could call it something as distinct from food in general. And that was something that really made a difference because now you can talk about it differently and say that there's a coherence to it, that there's um, something about it that makes it separate and its own cuisine. And it's different from the food of the rest of America. And like, I know because I'm from New Orleans, I thought everybody ate like this because that's what children think that this is the world you know and I had a an experience of going to Augusta Georgia and I ate trout amandine in New Orleans often Uh, my mother cooked it everyone I mean it was just everywhere and I went to Augusta Georgia I went to the finest restaurant in the city was a guest of someone and I ordered trout amandine, never thinking Augusta, Georgia is not on the water or anything like that. And I got fish sticks with almonds on it. And that was trout amandine. Oh my goodness. I am not kidding you. And I thought, okay, I'm not in New Orleans anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, 
I realized in many ways through that experience that the food of New Orleans was different. And there is no way any restaurant, no matter how lowly, would have served fish sticks for trout almondine in New Orleans, not any restaurant. And so I learned that this was really different. And, um, and so I've always been sort of fascinated by Lefkadi O'Hearn. I feel like he interpreted Japan for America also. And obviously there were women that really supported him and he entered the society and learned the food through the women. And yet they are anonymous and they are never given any credit. And we all know uh, food writers, men who, whose wives are just as important as they are in the research and in the cooking and testing and whatever, who are you know, maybe acknowledged in, oh, I thank my wife for all of her help kind of thing in some acknowledgement, but are never credited as a co-author or anything like that. Anyway, I just loved that. It was like exposing Lafcadio, who was his own weird creature anyway, but um... <laughs> he was his own weird creature. And and I think that that's why I I stayed with him for, you know, the eight years that it took to write this book. You must have done so much research. Uh, well, Liz, I, I think that this is the, the, the thing that I hope readers can appreciate is that when a writer of historical fiction sort of goes towards the margin of history, you know, mm -hmm. it takes longer and it's, it's, an actu it's actually much more difficult to do um, because, for example, with with this novel that I wrote, if I had stayed within the center, meaning if I put Lafcadio Hearn right in the middle of my book and just wrote about all the things that have already been written about him, all the biographies that's available, all of his own correspondence, if I just stayed right there, <laughs> you know, it's it, the research has already been done. You know, I'm I. There's a wealth of information really about him, but the moment that I decided I would like to write from the point of view of his Greek mother Rosa, there there are references to her certainly mm -hmm. in the biographies and in Lafcadio's own writings, but they all honestly did not make sense. You know, there were lots of, um, I think when you were talking about Lafcadio, you said, obviously, there were women in his life who helped him. That obviousness to you and me was not obvious to his male biographer. Right, right. And no. probably not obvious to him. He probably uh -huh. thought that the women were insignificant, really. Exactly. Exactly. Or he would do something like raise them up onto a pedestal right. that could not, you know, could you not live up to that. No, yes. no. You know, Rosa, his mother, was all that was good in him. Mm -hmm. And I thought very interesting, Liz, that he thought of her 
as people would during his time, because she was a Greek woman, mm -hmm. that she was Oriental. Ah, yeah. that's so, interesting. Yeah. Right? Yes. So yeah. he considered her an other, right? Other in the sense of the way that the world around him was organized, but right. the Occidental was his, his um, Irish father. The Oriental was his mother. But of course, he was both. So, right. He seemed to not be aware of that. <laughs> well, it's, I think that what he had was sort of um, kind of a, well, I, I think what he had was a privileged sort of position where he could, when he wanted to, pivot more towards, you know, belonging. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, he was, you know, part of the, the journalistic establishment, right. you know, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. He was a reporter. He was a writer. He was, right. he could do all these things. And he had access because of that. Exactly. And also be, being a man. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, people who were writing about him, you know, at the time or um, after his death would kind of sometimes refer to sort of the, the color of his skin, you know, olive. Olive, you know, was sort of a, a sort of a euphemism for not exactly white, right? <laughs> right. Or, um, and so it seemed to me that he probably didn't actually fit in as much as he thought he did or or um thought he had the ability to mm -hmm. you know that mm -hmm. he was being othered and so maybe that was the that was what was also pushing him towards the margins of society and writing about um, the black community in Cincinnati, writing about, you know, the black Creoles in New Orleans, you know, mm -hmm. he mm -hmm. and certainly when he went to Japan and, and really sort of, uh, sort of came into his own in terms of his writing, you know, mm -hmm. um, his personal essays about Japan, you know, when mm -hmm. he first got there are particularly interesting. If you think about it through the lens of what I've just said to you about him mm -hmm. and being mm -hmm. both, you yeah. know, being Occidental and Oriental, because what, what I see, at least when I read those essays, is that in Japan, he became more Occidental. I mean, he is, you know, he had no choice. Right. You know? Right. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. He, he would write about how everyone was much shorter and how a stranger there could feel like a giant. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is a short man. Right. In right. New Orleans and Cincinnati. Yes. <laughs> he, was, yes. he was often referred to as a short man. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> but all of a sudden in Tokyo and in Matsue, the town um, on the western coast where mm -hmm. he really uh, was first started to make his home there, he felt like a giant. How funny that transformation. It, it is really funny. How 
how much information were you actually able to find out about the women? Mm. Uh, because you make them people. And sometimes if you can't find a lot of facts about them, it becomes all in your imagination. How much mm -hmm. of it is your imagination? That's a good question. I th with, for example, his first wife, Alethea, mm -hmm. who was a biracial woman mm -hmm. whom he married in Cincinnati, Ohio. She was born into slavery in the state of Connecticut, um, Connecticut Kentucky. <laughs> um, with her, I had actually access to, or anyone would have access to the, to Lafcadio's own writings about her. Mm -hmm. He didn't write a lot about her, but he did write one kind of really uh, um, just lovely kind of essay that, well, is it an essay? It's more like a sort of a, a reportage, right? That was from the point of view of a boarding house cook, which she was, mm -hmm. uh, telling him ghost stories. And he, we, it begins with sort of a description of her and then about what a wonderful storyteller she is. And then the rest of the piece is essentially being written in her voice. And I found it incredibly helpful to, to sort of pull my vocabulary from that piece, like the way that she, um, that he rendered her felt very loving and very different, I have to tell you, Liz, from the way that he wrote about the Black folks in Cincinnati in his other journalistic pieces. Mm -hmm. Those pieces often relied on very, you know, on, on a kind of, um, kind of strong, I mean, if you want to be charitable, you would say that he was trying to create a, or recreate a dialect, but it felt more stereotypical, mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. and, and kind of um, just disrespectful, mm -hmm. honestly. Mm -hmm. But with, with Alethea, there was just a musicality to mm -hmm. it, mm -hmm. you know, and what is also really great about Alethea is that there's a um, interview that she gave when she, this was after for, um, I should say, an interview for uh, a newspaper in Cincinnati. This was after Lafcadio had passed away and she filed suit against his estate, uh -huh. you know, claiming that she was the first wife mm -hmm. and they never got a divorce mm -hmm. and that she was entitled to his estate. Mm -hmm. Now imagine a black woman in 1906, this would have been doing this one filing suit. Right. Right. <laughs> right. And then giving an interview in a newspaper, this all had to do with how well-known Lafcadio was when he right. passed away in 1904, right? Yeah. yeah. But still, this was a very 
this is not a woman who was going to, you know, say, oh, well, this right. is this right. is the state of my life. This was someone who was going to stand up for herself. And I'll tell you that given the fact that you and I are both lawyers, we know that, I mean, first of all, it's just the access to the courts. Like, how did she do this? You know, Mm -hmm. it just tells you, uh, to me, it just says so much about the inner strength of this woman. Yes, yes. Well, I, yeah. I want to thank you so much for talking to us today. I want to recommend to everybody that they read The Sweetest Fruits, as well as your other books. They are The Book of Salt and Bitter in the Mouth. And those are your food books anyway. And, <laughs> uh, and I'm looking forward to going to the Asia Society page in Houston and learning about your libretto, well, the performance and (laughs) contributed the libretto to. I think that's also very, very exciting. Thank you so much for your time and your thoughts and for those great books. Thank you so much, Liz. It's a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from the Camellia Bean Studio at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, part of the Nitty Grits Network. For more information on today's podcast, join the Tip of the Tongue podcast group on Facebook. Please come by when you're in New Orleans and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like it, let us know in the comments. This is Liz Williams.